Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking again about the Kingdom of God. We're starting a series that will probably be a 10-20 part series on the beast in Revelation and the mark of the beast and the little beasties that make this all come about in confronting the beast. So... How do you do that? What is that all about? What is all this thing about revelations and prophecies, etc.? There's actually a website, the big list of false prophets, and they, they have a list of all kinds of uh, prophets like Piazza Smith and uh, Moses David, who is also known as David Berg, and uh, Bhagwan Sri or Ajnish, uh, the guru who predicted all kinds of uh, worldwide communist dictatorship would be established in 1993 and Christ would return to earth, you know. There's all these different prophecies. Uh, they even mentioned David Koresh and uh, I was trying to think of some of the other vortex of the Star of David uh, religious sect and Dan Mellar and numerous other prophets and prophetesses who are all talking about the future and what's going to happen and most of their predictions have come and gone and they were all false or seemingly all false I mean you could say wait a minute there is a communist dictatorship gone worldwide it's called the new world order it's been here already every single country in the world is a socialist nation now they have different forms of socialism, but they're all socialists. And basically, that's what communism is, is socialism. I mean, you could, the communist Russia and communist China are identical, but they are all socialists. And socialism has taken the world by storm. Every single country in the world today is a socialist nation. And socialism has now become a good thing. And to even talk against it, you start hearing growls from the gallery. They don't like it. They don't want you to talk against it. Most Americans don't even know how socialistic they've become and when they all started becoming socialistic. Public school, public education, which is a phenomenon of the last century, because before the 1900s, most people in America were not educated in public schools. Public schools were in a minority of schools, and even the public schools back then were heavily financed by private donations. And so the idea of public education is, is really fairly recent in American history. But it's socialistic. Public schools is socialism. It's compelling your neighbor to pay for your child's education at the point of a gun. Legally, because you don't own your property, and so they can tax your property now. You only have a legal title to your property. It's not what... Americans came here to actually own land that could not be taxed. And that someone who owned land that could not be taxed 
was a, uh, someone who was referred to as landed. They actually owned land, owned it. And they were also called freemen. A freeman, by definition, even in the Oxford Dictionary today, is someone who owns the land itself. That means land untaxable. If you're paying tax on land, you're renting. Stop paying rent and see how much you own it, because you don't own it. Now, you don't like to hear that. I know a lot of Americans don't like to hear that. But that's just the way it is. I'm not making it up. Don't pay your taxes for three, four, or five years, depending on which state you're in. And they'll take the land away from you. In Oregon, they nullify your ownership. And they take it and they sell it and they keep all the money. Uh, many states keep all the money when they sell your land. I told a story not too long ago on the radio about a lady who was, uh, I think it was like $6. She was short on what she owed in taxes. And that was a fine. That wasn't actually the tax. She would paid all the tax, but she didn't pay part of one of the fines that were imposed on her. She owned the land outright or owned the legal title, correctly speaking here, owned the legal title outright. Her husband and her had paid it off. Her husband got sick and he died. And she was left a widow. And she fell behind on paying the taxes. She was barely making ends meet. She had to go to work. And it was rough. She's a widow. And they didn't have, you know, uh, a lot of savings. I think a lot was eaten up by medical expenses when her husband died. I mean, just funerals alone will impoverish a lot of people. But uh, she eventually got caught up on her back uh, property taxes and was able to pay it, working hard. But she missed a $6 fee that she evidently it failed to pay because it was a late fee kind of thing. And they sold her land at auction. And somebody else bought it. It was worth about $250,000. They bought it for like, I think, $160,000. Because she was missing 60 bucks. And the new owner said he would be glad to step away and, and not keep the land if she would just pay him back the 165 that she paid to the state to buy the land. Now, this all went on right in the midst of hundreds of churches throughout the state. Thousands of people claiming to be Christians. And this lady was robbed of her land. Robbed of the legal title to the land. Because she didn't own it. But it was legally robbed. It's not a violation of law. It was in accordance with law. They may have found a technicality and eventually she after years of fighting this court, which cost her thousands of dollars, she may be about to get the land back. But why did she have to go through this? Why was she so brutally assaulted by the government? To, because of $60 in fines. Not $60 in failure to pay taxes, but fines. Because you live in a socialist nation that is up to its earlobes in greed. And people want their benefits, and they want them now, and they don't want to wait for them in line. Because we have bred a nation of selfish, covetous people. Now, you you all out there, you're not all coveting your neighbor's goods, and you're not all selfish, and some of you are 
are literally walking saints, I'm sure. But probably not as many as would like to think so. The reality is, is that the nation is being weakened. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about articles written by people on Mises. And we're going to talk more about some of these predictions that come about. You know, I could just go all the way down. Supposedly, there's an Edgar Casey predicted that the Earth would have a new pole during the winter of 1997 to 1998. Since the Earth spins like a gyroscope, this would take an enormous amount of energy to achieve. That amount of energy would cause massive disruption to the oceans and Earth's crust that could in turn cause very serious worldwide tidal waves, earthquakes, and volcanic eruptions. Well, last I looked at my calendar, 1998 came and went. So evidently the date was wrong. Will that eventually happen anyway? Probably. I mean, just looking at uh, geomorphology, eventually things like that will happen. I was talking with my son earlier this morning when he was headed out to work, and we were talking about some of these things, and I said, I predict there will be an earthquake somewhere, sometime, in this planet. <laughs> That's a pretty easy prediction to cover, but exactly when, uh, pretty hard to tell. Uh, I've seen some remarkable predictions of earthquakes by just observing events on the sun and were remarkably accurate because of the theory of reflective resonance that what happens on the sun happens on the earth. And so when they see certain disturbances on the sun, they'll also see them on the earth. And the uh, same thing seems to appear on other planets, and it's magnified by events that connect the planets to the sun. And so there is a certain amount of analytical predictability of things like earthquakes or storms or what have you. And you can predict the future based on observations in the present. How accurate is this? Well, Observations aren't perfect, and things are not always as accurately contrived as we would like to think our brains are capable of doing. But we are always anxious to know the future and what's going to happen. How do you know the future? How do you know if the visions this fellow has is true and, and correct? Hong Ming Jin who founded God's Salvation Church in Texas. The group believes that a nuclear war will destroy parts of the earth in 1999, which has come and gone, and it didn't happen. So he evidently was wrong. Um, Michael Drosnan, author of The Bible Codes, found a hidden message in the Pentateuch, the, you know, the first five books of the Bible, that predicted that the World War III involving worldwide atomic holocaust would start in 2000 or perhaps 2006. Well, both those dates have come and gone and it did not occur. So, who do we believe? William Cooper? 
head of the militia group in St. John's, Arizona, predicted that on this date of 2000, January 1, a secret chamber of the pyramid at Giza will be opened. Its secrets will be revealed and Satan will become a public figure. The American militia will engage in massive war at this time, and this and the previous predictions are only two that we have been able to find which agree on the same day. Of course, it is an obvious date to select because most people believe that the next millennium begins then, on January 1st, 2000. And it it starts one year later in 2001, January 1st. So, uh, But both those dates have come and gone, and we don't seem to have seen this. I actually have some first-hand knowledge about the pyramid at Giza and a chamber that was discovered under the Sphinx. It was discovered by Boris Said, who was kind of a... Indiana Jones type figure. Uh, he was a producer of shows about the pyramids um, with Charlton Heston narrating. His son is a famous race car driver. If you Google the name, Boris, spelled like said. He and several other archaeologists and authors went to the Giza Plateau and were using testing equipment to examine the density of the rock on the Giza Plateau to see if there were any hollow spots. And they found one under the pyramid, under the uh, Sphinx. And the Sphinx is apparently much older than the pyramids themselves. The erosion on the Sphinx is much different than the erosion that you see on the rocks of the pyramid. If you take close-up pictures of the erosion and you showed it to almost anyone who is a geologist, they would tell you that this erosion is due to rainfall, large amounts of water washing over the Sphinx until you back up and show them that the Sphinx is the Sphinx and not just the rocks that you're showing them the picture of. And then as soon as they realize it's in the desert, they say, oh, no, well, that, that must be something else. Uh, that's, uh, that's not water because there's not supposed to be any water in the desert. But supposedly, the Sphinx was built long before the pyramids. And the reason the pyramids are partially there is because the Sphinx was there. And the Sphinx was discovered. And there's all kinds of ancient legends and writings that have been discovered that talk about the king that may have built this being Cheops. And, and then some people relate Cheops as actually Job. And he when wandering in the desert, discovered the Sphinx and then began this process of building the pyramids, which was eventually finished by one of the pharaohs. And then there's all kinds of rumors about all these cities that were built and the stones that are impossible to move and the size of the stones and and the guys who were predicting that all these things were obviously levitated into place because there was no way possible that they remove and move these stones and quarry these stones. And the reality is they leave all kinds of bits and pieces out of their puzzle because they actually find the tools, they find the methods, they even find the description of how they move the stones. And I, I love this old pyramid, which was a program put on by the same people who produced this old house 
And uh, they took out a stonemason from New England who went over there and said, you know, cutting these stones and moving them, no big deal. It's just work. And most of your scholastic uh, archaeologists don't know what it's like to do work with heavy equipment. I mean, with heavy materials like stones, not using heavy equipment. And it was just a very interesting show with the personalities butting heads because the intellectual had deciphered what he imagined to be the reality of how the pyramids were built. And it simply wasn't, it simply isn't the way it was. And then you go to Easter Island and all these other places, uh, and, you know, obviously extraterrestrial, like Danigan writes his book, you know, Chariots of the Gods, that every painting, rock, Carving, there is, it's, before you know it, he's turning into alien spaceships and flying saucers or what have you, and obviously this, that, and the other thing, and it's not so obvious. And when people who actually go and investigate this examine it, they find out that's not true. This is, this is, this is common. This is the way these things happen, and and this is the way they built these things, and here's the tools, and, and here's people who live on the island still know how to do these things, and, and you know, but they look at the pieces of the puzzle, and they come to a conclusion of what they think the truth is. And it's not usually the truth. It's made up. And you get the same thing in lots of other areas of knowledge where people are calculating that this thing is so because of this and this is so because of that, but they they leave out pieces of the puzzle. Or they they simply believe that this thing fits with that thing and therefore this is the conclusion. But the reality is they don't really fit together. They don't prove one to the other. Danigan is a prime candidate for this. Same way with the uh, archaeological soothsayer tells us all about Planet X coming. And he's, he does all these translatings and this is this and this and the Anunnaki and all this stuff. When you actually examine the materials, it doesn't quite fit. You know, he's making leaps of a logic and many of the things that would absolutely begin to fit together and prove that what he is saying is true simply don't fit together, and therefore what he's saying may not be true. Then you have the people, when I first heard about things like Nibiru and I started investigating it, there were all kinds of people out there who were saying that they spotted it here and spotted it there, and and you know they were channeling information from this side of the universe or something. I don't know. And it was jumping all over the place. And people were listening. People were listening to it because they want to know what the answer is because it gives them an edge, because they're actually insecure. And they're afraid. And they don't know really what is going to happen, but they want to know so bad that they want to the guy with the most convincing argument is the guy they want to believe. 
they just want to believe what he has to say because they want to believe that they have the edge because it gives them a sense of security. It gives them a sense of safety. And it actually makes us less safe because we aren't relying on our own personal revelation. We're going to talk a lot about how you recognize true revelation and not just in other people. It's pretty easy to tell whether somebody's a minister of God or not. But the fact is, you know, actually I really shouldn't say it's pretty easy because almost any of the criteria that you use is going to be intellectually applied. The only way you can really tell if somebody is seeing the truth or the prophecy or or what's going to happen or whatever is that you see it too, that you actually see it. Now, one of the things, though, that you should use that always is a litmus test of whether or not you see the future or the truth or revelation or, or understand the situation or whatever it is that you're trying to decipher to know whether this is right or wrong or true or whatever is that it is not accompanied by fear. One prophet fellow who was around for quite some time, I remember hearing Daniel Brinkley, and you know he was, uh, I think he was the guy who was struck by lightning while he was on the telephone. I, I may have that wrong, but anyway, uh, he began to see certain things, and he predicted all kinds of stuff. And he had scenes from World War Three. And it uh, came to life before me, he says. And I was in a hundred places at once. And, you know, all these kind of things. And everybody goes, wow, wow. It's kind of like, if you ever listened to Art Bell? Art Bell could speak on the radio and he would get all kinds of people who were telling them all kinds of things. And he would listen to them and you would hear like, oh, my goodness. Oh, really? And... I don't really believe he thought, I think he thought the guy was a total wacko, but he was, he was copacetic with the guy. So, <laughs> and he would play, play the, the news announcer. And, but he kept a lot of truckers awake and saved lives by doing so. So, but when we come back, let's talk about how do you know what you know is true? We'll be right back and we'll talk about that. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom, and we're talking about prophecy, predictions, the future, the past, and in the past, most prophets were wrong. (laughs) They just got it wrong. It isn't what was going to happen, it didn't happen, and they had the dates wrong. One of my favorite prophets is a fellow who's been around for a long time, is Harold Camping who's president of Family Radio, and he predicts stuff all the time. Into the world, May 21st, September 29th of 2011, just goes on and on. And he's wrong. And then he comes out with another prediction, and everybody listens. (laughs) Hello? He got it wrong. He got it wrong again. And he got it wrong again. And he got it wrong again. I always remember the, I think it was one of the Ghostbusters shows, uh, 
Bill Murray had somebody on his talk radio show that was actually predicting the future, which was going to be the future of Bill Murray because of the fact that this guy was seeing the future of the Ghostbusters and what they were going to be doing. And Bill Murray, of course, was putting it down in his comedic way. And one of the things that he put down is he says, well, his prediction is way too soon. I mean, his book's not even going to go into the second printing, and they're going to know it's a fraud. And uh, because he assumes that everybody's a fraud, because he was always a fraud. <laughs> but anyway, the reality is I, I, I like the, the predictors, the guys who are predicting stuff that is in 2064. Uh, because they will have already retired and passed away by the time the prediction gets there. But other people are not quite so bright, and they're predicting stuff in the very near future. And, of course, now we can sit back and read 2010. In early 2005, Roderick C. Meredith, leader of the Living Church of God, wrote the church magazine Tomorrow's World, that the end of the world is near, he said, and that events prophesied in the Bible are beginning to occur with increasing frequency. We are not talking about decades in the future. We are talking about Bible prophecy that will intensify within the next 5 to 15 years. Well, it may be true because we're only a little over 7 years into that prediction. But it hasn't happened yet. Uh, at least not the way he says. But I can tell you this, that there will be economic woes in the future. <laughs> I don't need a crystal ball to tell you that. There will be earthquakes in the future, and there will be wars in the future. I can tell you all that. But the end of the world? Uh, what is that? Where does this idea that the end of the world is coming? Now, it's been around for a long time, and we can go to the Bible, and even in the Old Testament, it talks about the end of the world in Psalms 19.4. It says, their, their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them has he set a tabernacle for the sun. They're not talking about the end of the planet. They're just talking about to the other side of the planet, you know, to the other side of inhabited places is actually the Hebrew word that they're using there. But if you read down in Matthew, there's also the same kind of thing going on in Isaiah 62:11. But in, in Matthew 13:39, it says, The enemy that sowed them in the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. And he's talking about prophecies, the messengers. The reapers are the messengers. The messengers are the reapers. That is a really important concept. And I have not, all the biblical studies and all the uh, prophets and prophets for prophets that I have read don't understand why the messengers are the reapers. And that is a basic principle of spiritual law. I read this morning, I was up early about 2 o'clock, and I read a lot of stuff by someone who is, uh, let's just say they're a minister under a vow of poverty, and they they work for a large church, and uh, 
They seem to be a rather, you know, nice person and maybe a very kind person. And they understand canon law. They understand its history. They've studied it. They've got degrees in it. And they've read it uh, in Eastern Orthodox and and in the different synods and, and divisions that have taken place over the centuries. Canon law. But they seem to miss some very important fundamentals. One thing is, is that from the beginning, there were preachers coming into what was the church appointed by Jesus Christ and bringing in damnable heresies. And one of them is that there should be a hierarchy of authority in the church, some sort of hierarchy of exercising authority within the church. Anyone who thinks that is opening the door to the Antichrist, because that is Antichrist. When Jesus said, these are the ones that were with me in my temptations, what was his temptation? The temptation was to exercise authority, one over the other. Christ had more right to exercise authority than anybody. He was the highest son of David. He was the king of Judea. He did issue certain edicts and commands when he was in the Gastaphone, the the royal treasury. But that was his job to, uh, as king, He was to fire the money changers if they were corrupt. He could not, as king, elect new ones. It wasn't his place to elect new ones. He even tells this to his apostles. It's not given to me to say who's going to sit in this position or that position. If it wasn't given to Jesus, it wasn't given to anybody else. Not as some central authority that can appoint people from the top down, because that's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom of heaven begins within you and and your neighbor and your neighbor's neighbor and your neighbor's neighbor's neighbor. That's where it begins. So who sits higher in the kingdom is he who serves the best. And he who serves the best is determined by those who say, this is my minister. This is my sir. And ten families pick a servant, to serve, to be a mediatory agent of Jesus Christ. A mediatory agent of Christ, we'll say. And I have some articles coming up that will mention that, this idea of a mediatory agent of Christ. That's what a minister is. He never stands between you and Christ. He doesn't mediate between you and Christ. But he's a mediatory agent of Christ providing a service and the transference of wealth from one group of people to the needy, the righteous needy, the worthy poor. That's the job of the minister. Always been the job of the minister since the days of Abraham, even actually back, if you go far enough, back to the days of Enoch. A minister of God was to do the work of God for the people by the offerings of the people for the benefit of the people. And they did it by free will offerings, by choice. Choice remained with the individual. So as the kingdom of God is within you and you receive the divine revelation of God, you will be able to pick your minister and give to him to fulfill, to help fulfill, I mean, you have a duty 
to God and your fellow man. That's what religion is, your duty to God and your fellow man. I'm going to repeat that over and over again. You're going to hear that from me over and over again because you don't hear it from anybody else. It used to be written in the dictionary as a definition of religion. Even at the time of Christ, you can find dictionaries that state that that's the definition of religion. But there's another definition that comes along. It's what you think about God is supposed to be religion. If you think God's name is Allah, then that's your religion. If you think God's name is Yahweh, then that's your religion. If you think God's name is Yah, then that's your religion. If you think God's name is Elohim or Jehovah, that's your religion. If you think his character fits this, that's your religion. But that's not what religion was. Religion was how you fulfilled your duty to God and your fellow man. Now, why God and your fellow man? Because God said you just love your neighbor as yourself, and therefore that's your duty. So in order to do that, to love your neighbor as yourself, you may need to have somebody help facilitate that love because you get busy. And so you empower somebody to help fulfill your duty to your fellow man. And that's what socialism is. You're empowering somebody to take care of the needy of society. That's what socialism is. But socialism takes an extra step. In socialism, you have empowered somebody to compel you to contribute to the welfare of your neighbor and everybody else in your socialist system. In God's system, you maintain your right to contribute. You make that daily choice. God is a God of choice. He gives you a choice. Give, not give. Freely give, not freely give. Freely receive, not freely receive. That's your choice. Because in that choice, I mean, you think about it. Raising your kids, if you give them choices to make, they learn to make choices. If you take away choices, they never learn to make choices. I remember some very restrictive parents who never let their kids make choices and restricted them quite a bit. And when, as soon as their kids were out on their own, they went, God got crazy doing all kinds of things. When their parents were gone for the weekend, they were trying to sneak around behind their parents' back and do things that their parents didn't know. I mean, there was some of that even in my own family. The least rebellious of my children was actually doing a lot of things in secret. <laughs> it was was not really a bad kid, but he did do some stuff that he shouldn't have been doing. But that's part of that choice. Some of those things I knew about. And still to this day, some of those things I know about, and he doesn't know I know about. <laughs> and I, I'm not giving it away. <laughs> but choice. God wants you to have choice, so you should want your children to have choice, because in giving them the chance to make choices, they learn. How do you make those choices without divine revelation? And we're back to that end of the world in Matthew thirteen forty nine. So shall it be at the end of the world. So everybody says, oh, my goodness, there's going to be an end of the world. And then we see in Matthew 24, 3, he sat uh, upon the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came unto him privately, saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the signs of thy coming? And of the end of the world. Oh my gosh, he's talking about the end of the world too. 
and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's in Matthew 28, 20. So those are all in Matthew. I don't see anything mentioning the end of the world in Luke or, or Mark or John. We do see it mentioned again in Hebrews in 9.26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now any in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. Put away sin already in the end of the world. What, 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 what end of what world? What is going on here? It's already happened. He's put away sin at the end of the world. And did you know that those there's two words in that Hebrews that are both translated into world. They have no connection whatsoever. They are not the same words at all in the Greek. They are completely different words. So when he talks about the foundation of the world, he's talking about the organized system or constitutional order or government. That's what that word means. And that's usually created by the concept contained in another Greek word, kamizo, which means to take care of. The systems of the world are often created by offering benefits to the people to take care of them, to take care of their needs. And by people applying for that benefit, they become a part of the world, the constitutional order or system of government or whatever it is that they have organized. But the end of the world phrase that we see there in that verse and also in Matthew 28, 20 and 24, 3 and 13, 49, that's not the same word for world. That's not the end of the constitutional order and system of government. Although that system, which is tied to the idea of the unrighteous mammon, which means entrusted wealth, doesn't mean money, it means entrusted wealth, that is evidently going to fail. And they always have. Anyone who predicts this, I predict that the United States government will fail. When? I don't know. But it will fail. They all do. They all eventually decay and collapse and fail. It's it's not even the same government that it was 200 years ago. It's different. Vastly different. The relation of all the people to it is vastly different. So whatever existed in 1798 doesn't exist anymore as it did in 1798, something else is existing in its place. It may be still called the same thing, but everybody's relationship to it has changed. Its relationship to everybody else has changed. Its power uh, has changed. All these things have changed. And you really can't go back to the way it was because you're not back there anymore. You're, you've changed. The people have changed, you know. Now, if you want to go back to a state of liberty and freedom that once you enjoyed and you don't seem to enjoy anymore, well, then you have to change first. You have to be the change you want to see in the world. Uh, I think Gandhi said that, or at least people said that about Gandhi. But anyway, what is this end of the world? The word world there in all those verses is the same Greek word, but it's not the Greek word. That means inhabited place. It's not the Greek word that means planet. It's not the Greek word that means, uh, you know, uh, constitutional or system of government. So what word does it mean? It means, it's a word that means time. It's aeon. 
It means an age, a period of time, a long period of time. When they talk about the end of the world in the Bible, every single place you see it in the New Testament, they're talking about the end of an age. That's what they're talking about. <laughs> not, uh, they're not talking about anything else but the end of an age. What happens when you end an age? When you end one age, what is it that takes place? Well, I can tell you what takes place. Another age. <laughs> That's what happens when one age ends, another one begins. And... That's just the way it is. It always has been that way, and there's no reason to believe that it isn't. Now, that people talk about new heaven and new earth. Well, the earth has been renewed several times. Uh, the flood, after the flood, there was a new earth. The earth was under a new set of rules, a new system. You know, if we look at Luke one thirty-three, we see that same word, age, but it's translated as ever. And it says, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Well, wait a minute. If the world is in, has the kingdom end, ended? <laughs> because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So does it end? No, it doesn't really. And we can go through a world without end. Age without end. That's actually what they say in Ephesians 3.21. It's that same word, age again. Throughout all ages, it says, and then it says world, which means ages without end. Amen. And we see the these same things going on in other verses. But we won't bore you with that. We'll get on to what we were talking about before. How do you know when Revelation is real? How do you know that these prophets are not just prophets for profit, and that they are actually seeing something in the future, something that you may need to know, and that they are actually accurate. Because I can go through long lists of guys who were not accurate <laughs> and did not know, but made a lot of money telling people that this is the way it's going to be. I mean, we have a prediction in 2016 there will be a virus that, will suddenly begin to spread in the planet and will eventually kill all humans on the whole planet. Now, I think that's that's quite a prediction. It came from the Donner Party, supposedly. A fellow, Professor Lloyd Cunningdale from Salt Lake, was excavating there and supposedly found a time capsule with this prediction in it. And he's telling everybody that there will be this sweeping disease that will kill everybody. Everybody on the planet, uh, which is a real bummer. You know, you don't even get the survivor thing. But there's a fascination in the subconscious of man with destruction. Countdowns to destruction. Like the nightmare for everyone and the countdown to 2000. It predicted that sometime before 2018, asteroids and comets will hit the Earth and between the recreation of Israel in 1948 and 2018, while well, they're running out of time. But the reality is, just like the recent comet that was coming, there was all kinds of predictions about that. These, I, was, I would get them in my emails, and then 
most of them so far have not come to pass. And those guys will be at it next year with new predictions. <laughs> We're supposed to be listening to it. But one thing that I did happen in skimming through a lot of these guys earlier this morning just so that I'd be able to share some of these things with you. Brinkley had said in one place, uh, he said, talking to this being of light that was giving him information, the fear these people are feeling is an unnecessary one, said the being of light, but it is a fear so great that humans will give up all freedoms in the name of safety. Well, Benjamin Franklin said the same thing hundreds of years ago. And he wasn't necessarily a being of light. It's just an observation that people fear can grip you so much that you will do almost anything. And I've watched recently a drama amongst people where fear and anger were constantly present in almost everything that that was being said. Even when they quieted down and were saying things supposedly in a logical tone. There was a strain of fear behind what they were saying. And you have to kind of step out of the situation. Don't get enmeshed in the drama and the energy of control or anger or fear. And you watch and you'll see that many comments that people make and many statements they make and many ideas that they come up with are interlaced with these threads of fear. And anxiety. Fear and anger, same thing. You see anger, you're seeing fear. And you're seeing one side of the coin of fear. The other side is flight, and this side is fight. But it's all part of the same event. And those events are all born out of the fact that God is not dwelling fully within you. I say fully, but he's basically not in wherever that's coming from. Because God does not move from fear. And anger. He comes with light and calmness of being. So anytime you see that fear, know that this is false prophet. If he is feeding the fear, it is a lie. So beware of that. But we're going to talk in great detail and depth about these predictions in the shows to come. So be there on Keys of the Kingdom. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church.
Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're talking again about the Kingdom of God, and we're talking about some of the advice of Jesus Christ and the advice of God and the words of God, which are, fear not. If you were to look up in the Bible for the words fear and not, and you did a search within all the verses of the Bible, you would find 144 times those words are found in the same verse. You'll find them in Genesis 15:1. Fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He is the benefit of Abraham. And Abraham started a whole system of altars, altars of stone and altars of clay, that were to bind the people together by love. And most people don't understand what these altars were. They actually think they were piles of stone and They put sheep on them and set them on fire. And uh, that is not really what the altars were all about at all. Uh, Not at all. And this was well known at the time of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees didn't know it. Pharisees believed that they were supposed to burn sheep up on tops of piles of stone. And that's not the case. That's not what they were supposed to be doing. They were not supposed to be doing that at all. And that it doesn't make God happy to see you doing that. And it never did. What they were creating were systems of social welfare. And we'll talk a great deal about that. We have already. And they were based on free will offerings to take care of the needy of their society. And this is what Moses was doing. This is what Enoch had done. This is what uh, the prophets were trying to tell us over and over again. In Samuel, in uh, 1 Samuel 4.20, fear not. He says, God says this over and over again, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Kings twenty-five, twenty-four, fear not. Psalms, he warns that people who fear not God, you're supposed to fear God, but no, respect God. How do you know what you know is true or not? If fear is there, if you know this is fear, if it instills fear, if it encourages fear in you, That's probably not of God. That's really hard to grasp, and you could even find some arguments against that. But God is not really one to make you tremble in fear. That's not what he reveals to you. He wants you to be his children. He wants you to respect him, and there are those who should tremble in fear because they go against the ways of God. But... Christ made it very clear that he was going to teach you something. And it wasn't out of fear, but out of love. It was out of love for one another, love for God. And one of the things that he talks about is what he was going to build his church on. And this is actually what Moses was doing too. Moses said, love thy neighbor as thyself, and all these things that Christ said. But the Pharisees, if they could twist piles of stone and burning flesh of sheep, into religious, mindless religious rituals who were not providing for the needy of their society and actually ended up robbing the widows and orphans because they imposed an actual tax upon the people. You see, when you got the baptism of John the Baptist, you had, excuse me, the baptism of Herod, you had to pay in. When you got the baptism of John the Baptist, you were to choose 
to share with your neighbor in some way. And John was creating a network of ministers who would facilitate that. They would be these mediatory agents of God and help you make sure that the right poor person got a coat when he needed it, that the widow did not starve to death in her hut because nobody came and checked on her. This was his job. This is what a deacon's job was, to take care of the needy of their society. And there were a lot of other jobs in the society besides taking care of the poor, but this was the basic motivation of forming that network, which was not fear, although it could be. You could be afraid that you will become that widow dying in your hut where nobody comes and looks for you. And because of that, you join a congregation and you start sharing in that congregation in hope, not in fear, this is the way you should be doing it, in hope that when you have a need, somebody will come and take care of you. People don't want to live by hope. They don't want to live by charity. They don't want to live by faith. They want a guaranteed entitlement. If I pay in, then you make people pay in for me when I get to be old. That's what they want. That system's been around a long time, too. Not quite as long as the system of God, but it's been around for almost as long. It's been along since the angels rebelled in heaven, because that's their system. Their system is a system of force and control. And the temptation that was coming to Christ was the temptation to be that controlling agent. And who was tempting him? The devil was tempting him. I will give you rule over all these nations if you will serve me, you see. And what that reflects down to and repeats over and over again in society is that the governments of the world, the world that will come to an end, the world of that constitutional order and system of government, which Jesus' kingdom is not a part of, that world will say, I will, I will give you power to rule over your neighbor if you will bow down and serve me. That's what his main line is that he gives you all the time. And he gives it in every nation of the world. But he will give you the power through his mediatory agents to rule over your neighbor, to force your neighbor to contribute to your public school, your health care, whatever. He will guarantee that he will force them to contribute to your welfare if you will bow down and serve him. And make a contract to do so. Apply and sign under penalty of perjury to do so. And that's, that's the contract with the devil. And almost everybody has signed it already. They've gone to churches... And they've imagined Christ and the teachings of Christ and the teachings of God and the teachings of Allah and the teachings of Buddha and the teachings of all these people of the past. They imagine them and they have bowed down and worshipped their imagination, what they imagined about these people. But they don't really know Christ. And I have to deal with Christ because, you know, as a minister of his church, no other church, but his church. I have to conform to his will. And I think it's a pretty good will to conform to. Because I believe it's one with God. It's one with the creator that giveth life. But anyway, he said that he was going to build his church, his ecclesia, his called out ones, based on 
something. And what was that? What was it that he was going to base that on? Flesh and what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, he says to Peter. He was asking the apostles, who am I, who am I, who am I? They uh, they were having trouble answering, and they were actually kind of evading the question. You know, so, well, some say, you know, rather than just saying what they think, they weren't saying because they were afraid to say what they think. But Peter spoke up. A lot of times Peter seemed to be a little bit more fearless than others, although we know that he became so afraid that he even denied Christ because without Christ living in you, without that spirit of Christ living in you, you will be afraid. You know, like Yoda talking to Luke, you will be afraid. And this is this is the message that we all need to realize is that without Christ living in us, how do we get Christ to live in us? To say some words? To uh, think a thought? And uh, then all of a sudden you're going to have Christ living in you? No. You have to open up your heart and begin to understand exactly what and who Christ was. You have to conform to his spirit and that will allow his spirit to live and dwell in you. And he talks about that. We won't go into all that. We're going to get back to this prophecy thing. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now what he's saying there is that Simon Barjona didn't get this from some other prophet who told him. Flesh and blood didn't tell him. He didn't get this because he calculated all the facts and read all the reports and uh, studied the history and understood the language and deciphered the code. He knew this because it was revealed to him. He personally received the revelation and the information that was here to be comprehended. God told him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Because my Father, which is in heaven, has revealed it to you. And I say unto thee, thou art a rock. And upon this rock, this rock of revelation, I will build my ecclesia, my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if you want to confront the beast coming from the gates of hell into this world, you need to be a rock of revelation. You need to receive the revelation of God. You can't receive the revelation of God if you're busy trying to figure it out yourself. If you're intellectually plucking knowledge from the tree of knowledge and trying to gather all the fruit of knowledge you can... So that you know the answer. You're not giving God a chance to say anything. You're not even listening to God. You're picking fruit. You're running out there trying to accumulate knowledge and information so that you will know the answer. And because 
That's where your heart is at. Instead of humbly saying you don't know the answer, you will not receive the answer. You will not receive the divine revolution. And my personal advice to you is don't try to confront the beast without it. Don't. If you're gathering knowledge to confront the beast and gathering as much as you can to confront the beast, you are playing into its hands because you will not prevail with the knowledge that you can accumulate. And Christ gives us little hints on this. He talks about not rehearsing what you're going to say and all this stuff because he will give you the words. But he's not going to give them to you unless you're operating from that divine revelation of not knowing yourself and admitting you don't know yourself and letting God reveal it to you. And, you know, the very next thing that Jesus said after this is, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that's apropos for this show because these are the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which I am giving to you now. And this is the keys. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So now, the demons of the universe, the evil, the beasties of the universe, whether they be in flesh and blood creatures that you see or somewhere in the ether beyond, operate by trying to get you to bind yourself to them in subservience. They want you to say, I swear to do what you say. <laughs> I go under your authority in order to obtain benefit. Anybody offering you something, if you will go under their authority, their spirit is born in hell. You see, because that's the way they work. God wants you to go under his love by loving others. And the devil wants you to go under his authority by exercising authority over others. Now, I can just feel that some of you just made a connection. <laughs> you just had a revelation. You just, you just saw something you hadn't seen before. That's good. But there's more to come. Just to get off this Daniel Brinkley fellow... I was just drawn back to the, the webpage that was talking about him. He says, The quickest way to change the world is to be of service to others. Why? Because it's the quickest way to change you. You will find it hard at times to be of service to others. It will require patience, and it will make you aware of your impatience. But love is patient. It's long-suffering. So when you're aware of impatience, you're aware of your lack of love. When you're aware of the vacuum, you can open up your heart and let it be filled with love. Or you can deny the truth of your own lack and be filled with anger and fear and resentment. It says, show that your love can make a difference in the lives of people and thereby someone else's love can make a difference in your life. By each of us doing that, and working together, we change the world one inner person at a time. Why is it important to change the inner person? And you can't change it. You can be changed, but you can't change it. You can allow yourself to be changed, and you can disallow yourself to be changed. 
at least in a righteous way. Because you can block out the Holy Spirit. You can block out righteousness. You can, but you cannot compel it to enter into you because it listeth where it wills. Christ was talking all about this love and Paul was talking about charity and all these other things. But so many people think that we're saved just because we said some words or we think some thoughts or we accept an idea. That's just saving yourself. No, that's not real life. You're compelling grace because of your magic words. That is witchcraft. That's not the way it works. You can't just say the words. Not those who say, but those who do it. And the fact is, you can't even do it without the grace of God. But if you allow Christ in your heart, He will change it. He will clean out the demons. When His light goes on in you, the demons will flee. And when you become His torch in the world, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. This is a spiritual journey in a physical realm. Now, about revelations, about uh, about uh, prophecy, if someone is prophesying for profit, don't believe them. If they're selling their prophetic DVD, even at a special low, low price for the holidays, <laughs> get you from them. I don't know where Judas Iscariot was on the Sermon on the Mount, but if anybody was selling tickets, it had been him. As far as I know, they didn't sell tickets to that sermon. Freely give, freely receive, freely receive, freely give. That's the policy of Christ. So anybody who's in the business, of so every all our books, you can go buy them online, but you can download them for free from any library or anywhere else. I mean, you have to buy your own paper, but it's your paper. You have to buy your own ink. It's your ink. But you can read all those books for free online. Now, there are things that we don't put online. And when we really get into the meat of some of this topic of confronting the beast, we will probably be recording that offline. And it will eventually become a part of a series. But that series will be free online. And you can download them all for free online eventually. But we're going to try to cover as much as we can. But it is really important to know that when you hear it from a prophet, that's flesh and blood revealing it to you. It's his flesh and blood revealing it to you. You need to hear revelation for yourself. And you need to know the difference between the revelation of God and the revelation of Satan. Because did you know that Satan can appear as an angel of light? And he can say things that sound really good? Did Daniel Brinkley, was he listening to God? Was he listening to an angel of God? Or was he listening to the devil himself? I don't know. I don't need to know. Because I don't depend on flesh and blood to reveal to me what I should do. You know, all these prophets are not going to tell you specifically what to do. I always remember a story of a guy, this true story of a guy in England. I've told it before. You'll hear, many of you have heard it already. He was loading up a cart with debris during the bombings and the Blitz in World War II in London. And an air raid came and he jumps off the horse-drawn cart and he leaves it right where it is in the middle of the street and takes off running down the street several blocks to a bomb shelter. 
and he gets down into the bomb shelter where he thinks he's safe, but that shelter was actually hit by a 500-pounder and killed him that night. And it went right into the bomb shelter and killed the, I didn't kill everybody, but it killed him. The horse was still standing in the middle of the street, unprotected, didn't run to a shelter, not a scratch on it. So, if a soothsayer, prophet, prophet for prophet, tells you what you need to do to survive the coming Holocaust or whatever, and you act upon it, what was flesh and blood revealing to you of this coming Holocaust, you have absolutely no guarantee that your actions will not bring about your own demise. It's like death in Damascus. The story of a guy who sees death coming towards him with a startled look on death's face. And he realizes that he believes that death is coming for him and he jumps on his horse and he rides his horse until it dies at the gateway to Damascus and he runs into the city at the last, just exhausted and falls on the ground and he looks up and there's death. And the Death says, uh, he says to Death, I thought I would escape from you by riding to Damascus because I knew you were coming for me. He says, well, I was coming for you, but not then. I knew I had an appointment with you in Damascus this evening. <laughs> and I was surprised. How could you be in that other city? And I have this appointment with you now in Damascus. <laughs> so the guy's in an attempt to flee from Death. He fled to Death. And, you know, that's the message in the story, so all the Muslims, they can hear that story again. But uh, who are listening to the show, which I can't imagine there's a lot of them, but uh, there could be. But the uh, point is, is that each of us have a divine connection to God. And we broke it. And we broke it because we turned our back on God. Now we have to turn around, repent, turn around, and go back the other way. So that... His light can live in us and show us the way for us, for us individually, that we would know. You know, we could, we would be sitting still on that horse cart saying, well, you know, logic, flesh and blood tells me to run for the bomb shelter. But the Holy Spirit says, no, just stay here on the cart. You'll be safer here than in the bomb shelter. <laughs> That's the way the Holy Spirit will work. And you'll just sit there and and wait for the bombing to be over, and then you'll be on your merry way. Because you're led by the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. You need to know how to get there. Now, what did you do yesterday? Were you led by the Holy Spirit from the morning to night? Was everything you did based upon the guiding of the Holy Spirit in your life? Were you following His light? Or were you following your own ambitions, your own desires, your own fears, your anxieties? And there are tricks to find out what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you. I mean, there are exercises that you can do to try to listen to see what the Holy Spirit is trying to guide you to do. And those exercises simply consist of being still, being quiet, being calm, letting go. And when you try to do that, you're going to see... All the stuff that's gotten inside you, all the anger, all the resentment, all the pride, all the emotions that you have buried down inside you that are stirred up when you get quiet or try to get quiet. 
And you will see those things. And if you are willing to see those things and suffer the pain and agony of seeing them, patiently, lovingly, forgivingly, then you will learn to be still. And once you learn to be still, now you can know what God wants you to know. He can start to reveal himself to you. But you still have to be willing to accept what he gives you. And when he gives you something, you have to act upon what he gives you. And then he will give you more. If you don't act upon what he gives you, you will not get more. Now, right there, in those brief statements, all this other talk, in those brief statements, I've given you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Because in being still, and when you try to be still, you'll see your anger raising up in you. You'll see your impatience raising up in you. You'll see the thoughts of, of what somebody did to you. They'll come up. You'll have emotions and everything else because you're trying, seeking to be still. I shouldn't say trying, but seeking to be still, willing to be still for a moment, for ten minutes out of the day. Close your eyes and just be still. And you'll see all that's already gotten inside you. And being still will give you a chance to see that and let go of that. And you will be unbinding yourself by letting go of these things. Most of what binds you, you're holding the end of the rope. So you can't get untied. And we'll talk more about this so that you can have revelation when we come back to the keys of the kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're talking about the keys, and we're talking about Revelation. And we'll start with the first chapter of Revelations, and the first verse. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servant, things which must shortly, shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angels unto his servant, John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. He's talking about at hand, right up front, near. John to the seven churches, which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness of the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He made us kings and priests, each man king and priest in his own household. He washed them of their sin. Their sin of what? Of praying to Caesar, of praying to Herod for his benefits at the expense of our neighbors. 
the context of what we have done since God took us out of Egypt. We would go back to pharaohs of the world and say, give us this day our daily bread. I don't care where you get it from as long as I get my share. Blessed art thou amongst us men who are your servants. That's the prayer men have said for century upon century to rulers of the earth, to the fathers of the earth. But Jesus came to make each of us king and priest. And his church, the mediators, mediatory agents of his church, want to make you kings and priests again. Return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. And they are willing to give up all they have that you might be free. Because that is the character of Christ who would give up his life that you might be free. And we do this when the beast walketh about and devoureth who he will. Because we may be called upon to confront the beast. But this series is referred to as the beasties. Because the beast is nothing without the beasties. If it was only the beast that we had to contend with, God can contend with him. He can be our mighty herald. And he will send his mighty angels who stand behind us and put the fear of the Lord in the beast. But the beasties, the beasties that do the bidding of the beast, they will come. And they will come with a vengeance in their heart. For they want to believe that they are already right and righteous as most false Christians do today, as most false Buddhists do today, as most false Muslims do today. For none do follow the ways of Abraham and Moses or John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. For none live by faith, hope, and charity. They live by force, fear, and violence upon their neighbor so that they can have what they want to have and desire for themselves and not for the service of others. Now, where did I stop reading (laughs) Revelations? (laughs) I didn't stop reading Revelations. I am reading Revelations to you now. I'm speaking to you now of the Revelations of my own heart to you. You need to repent and turn around and seek the kingdom so that when you read the prophecy you may hear them. Because right now you are bound up in the world of fear and violence and and, uh, greed and covetousness. And you have to let go of that world in order to be gathered up in the kingdom of God. Much of the revelations that we talked about earlier shows of these people who were wrong are revelations of their own imagination. Some of them may even be revelations of Satan himself. For there can be revelations from both sides. We are caught between two worlds. One we call heaven, one we call hell. And both beckon to us. We draw near the world of God, the world of heaven through sacrifice. We don't earn our way in. We draw near because through sacrifice we open up our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit who may change us. But if we are selfish 
the antithesis of sacrifice. We are drawn near he who is the selfish God of selfishness, who will turn us into his minions and change us to his purposes. Today, hell is near empty, and all the demons are struggling to control this world. And you see them trying to control one another. And they will work through your loved ones, and they will work through your neighbors, and they will work through agents, immediatory agents of the devil, who are walking about the world, devouring who they will. Without the intercession of the Holy Father in heaven, you cannot confront the beast. You cannot stand against the beast. It will devour you. It will consume you. So anyway, we're going to talk about Revelations, but before we talk very much more about it or read very much more in Revelations so that you can actually begin to understand it, let's talk a little bit about the book itself. The book of Revelations, often known simply as Revelations or as the Apocalypse, which, you know, when you say Apocalypse, it sounds like the destruction. Uh, you know, it's the final book of the New Testament, at least as we know it from Eusebius, and uh, it occupies a, a central part of many of the Christian eschatologies. It's written in Koine Greek, and its title is derived from the first words of the text, Apocalypsis, which doesn't mean destruction. It means unveiling or revelations. And that word appears in the Bible a number of times. Uh, it does appear even in the Gospels in Luke 2.32. And it's in that verse where it says, A light is lighten the Gentiles. A light to lighten the Gentiles. And the glory of thy people Israel. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And he came, excuse me, and, and the same man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Now, the Holy Ghost was upon him already, so that's important to know. The Holy Ghost has been around for a long time. It didn't just arrive with Jesus Christ. Many prophets received this Holy Spirit, this holy, guiding, revelating Spirit. And this is how they knew many of the things that they knew. And... He came by the Spirit into the temple. In other words, the Holy Spirit was guiding him into the temple. Suddenly, he got up and he says, I got to go somewhere else. Something's leading me to go somewhere else. And this is an amazing power. And everybody should experience this. Everybody will need to experience this. But you need to make sure it's the Holy Spirit and not some unholy spirit guiding you. And how do you know that? Well, we'll have to get to that in, in the future here. But and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people. A light to lighten the Gentiles. 
and the glory of thy people Israel. From the beginning, Jesus came not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles. This is nothing new. For Israel was called to be a priest to all nations. A priest, we're going to get into what a priest is before we're done. We're going to examine the definition of that word and what a priest really is. It's that mediatory agent. It's not a mediator between you and God. It's a mediatory agent between you and what God wants done by you, for you, with you, and by you. He's just a servant. He is a public servant to facilitate you in the fulfillment of your duty to God and your fellow man. He is just an instrument of God in your hands and in God's hands to work together to accomplish a task which God has put before us and allows us to accomplish by His means as a matter of choice. Or you can go to Pharaoh and Herod and Caesar and have him as your ruler. But another spirit will occupy your temple if that is the spirit you will seek. And you can see evidence of that spirit all around in the temples that call themselves Christian today, where preachers are millionaires, where preachers live in mansions, and the people they come to serve don't. (laughs) Christ would get down on his hands and knees and wash your feet. Not as a show for his uh, proud humility. But he would truly do it and sacrifice himself for you. If your minister will not do that, you don't have a minister of Christ. If your minister has come to become rich, instead of made himself poor, though he was rich, then maybe, maybe your minister is a minister of Christ. But if you see the other, you have the other. Romans 2.5, we see that same word of revelations. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation. Of the righteous judgment of God. When the righteous judgment of God is revealed. Your impenitent heart. And the hardness of your heart treasures up thyself wrath. That's what you're going to get because you won't repent. Once you understand what was going on at the time of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, you, you can start to realize where Christianity has gone wrong. And it's done much of what it has done wrong. I mean, Christianity. Uh, there's been false Christianity around a long time. If, you know, like if, if somebody's burning heretics at the stake, it's the guy with the match who is the real heretic. And the one that's being burned, he might be a heretic or he might not be. I don't know. But the real heretic, I can guarantee you, has got the match. So anybody who's killing people in the name of advancing Christendom or taking their homes away or torturing them, That has nothing to do with Christ. That is totally not Christ's church. Totally. Absolutely. Not even close. Anybody who thinks contrary, see me after class. (laughs) I'll meet you outside. But anyway, 
a lot of people have sought to be the church established by Christ, but there's still evidence that they too are not following in the ways of Christ. How wealthy are their preachers? Are their churches taking care of all the social welfare like the first century church did? You got the baptism of Christ, you were cast out of the social welfare system set up by Herod and the Pharisees. You no longer, your widows and orphans would be starving in the street by the end of the week if you were not taking care of them in the daily ministration and the practice of pure religion. What would happen if all your people in your church were cast out of the welfare system of today that is like the Corbin of the Pharisees that was making the Word of God to none effect? Go read our articles on Corbin, and we'll talk about that eventually. 1 Corinthians one seven, So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming... The word coming there is that same word, revelation, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we all think that Christ is coming yet. That's what these prophets for prophet have been telling us. And Christ will come again. But it's not going to be a second coming. Christ has been around a long time. He's been in and out whenever he wants. History will repeat itself. So many of those prophecies that we see that John talks about that are near in Revelations, are already here. And I've already come and gone and will come again because prophecy repeats itself, especially when you see prophecy repeated in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 4.26 How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a, a song, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Are they being done unto edifying? It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Are we coming to visions and revelations of the Lord, or are we, through vain imagination, trying to figure things out through the plucking knowledge from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Christ was going to build his church by that revelation, the revelation of every man. Now, some men have a clearer revelation than others. How will you know if you should listen to him? If he's telling you to do what he says, he's probably not of Christ. If he's telling you to do what Christ said, maybe he might be of Christ. But you still always hold out the litmus test. Is he operating from fear? Is he operating in righteousness? Is he coming like Christ to serve, even to rebuke? Because as many as I love, I also rebuke. This will tell you, you are making the wrong preachers rich. And the preachers of Christ will not be made rich by you. They will remain poor and humble in their ways. They will not be putting a million dollars in their retirement fund every year. They will not be accepting a million and a half dollars in salary every year. They probably won't be accepting $500,000 salaries. They won't be accepting $200,000 salaries. They'll be living like Christ. Simple and humble life. But serving the people so that they do not have to go to the benefactors who exercise authority who will fail. I'll give you a prediction. The systems of the world that have promised you social welfare, security, health care, whatever, will fail. There's a prophecy. Write it down. When will it fail? When you need it the most. <laughs> you thought I was going to give you a date. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. How do you get the knowledge of God? Studying. Study to show thyself approved. The word there, study, is not study. It's the word diligent. Be diligent in the ways of Jesus Christ so that you may know him. And then the spirit of wisdom and revelation will come unto you and he will show you ways that you did not know existed, that you could not have figured out by plucking from the tree of knowledge. How that by revelation, I'm in Ephesians 3, 3, the last one was one seventeen. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in few words. That's a, that's a fact. Actually, I think everybody here in my voice today has had moments of revelation in their life. They may not have recognized it for what it was. Many of you were probably saved because you you knew I shouldn't go in there. I shouldn't do this. You know, I, I'm not going to get in that car. I'm not going to. Something, the stories of people being saved because at the last minute something told them not to go somewhere or do something is amazing. But the devil protects his own as long as his own has value to him and is useful to him. He demands a great deal of loyalty and he doesn't do it without knowing that he has to, you know, it's not always like you see in the, Tolkien's stories. The devil knows how to instill loyalty in others. Anyway, in, in the revelations of Jesus Christ, in Revelations 1.1, we see that word again. So the word is constantly showing up. And it shows up in Revelations, of course, at the beginning of it. And it has to do with somehow or other knowing something not by flesh and blood. Something is telling you something from beyond. The devil can reveal things to you, and God can reveal things to you. And this is all in the quantum. It's on in these other realms, which is scientific for those of you who, oh, I don't believe in any God or anything like that. Well, do you believe in science? Because science says there are these realms. <laughs> That's the string theory. And they believe it. And many of them are atheists. So your prejudice uh, keeps you in the dark. The author of the work identifies himself in the text as John. We've seen that. And says that he was a Potmos, an island in the Aegean. When he was instructed by a heavenly figure to write down the contents of a vision. This John is traditionally supposed to be John the Apostle. This is what we're often told. Although some historical critical scholars reject this view. That's right. They don't think it was John the Apostle. Recent scholarship has suggested other possibilities, including a putative figure given the name of John of Patmos, and most modern scholars believe it was written around 95, with some believing it dates from around A.D. 70. Now, note that what Whoever this John is, whether he's this John of Patmos who existed at the same time as, or a little bit earlier than John the Apostle, 
And, and there's a lot of reason to, to come to this conclusion. The book spans three literary genres, uh, what they call the epistolary and the apocalyptic and the prophetic. It begins with the epistolary address to the reader, followed by this apocalyptic revelation, description of a complex series of events derived from prophetic visions, which either the author has seen or he has had some prior knowledge of based on what somebody else has seen. And he somewhat sees the same thing based on this prior knowledge. And he is writing it based on... You know, whenever you receive a revelation, most of the revelations you you might receive in the Spirit, they're not unlike dreams in the sense... They may not be in dreams. They may be in visions. But they're not unlike dreams because a dream is created often out of what you are feeling emotionally or experiencing, and it's not coming to you in words. Your brain is painting the picture of your dream based on what your prior knowledge is. You've, you're filling in the blanks. You're, you're drawing the picture with what you already know. But that revelation is coming from somewhere else. So understanding that will be very important in order to reveal what I'm going to talk to you about next on Keys of the Kingdom. Till we meet again, may peace be upon your house, and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.